Well, I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. <clears throat> I come from the great city of Kalamazoo, <laughs> just down the road. I have uh, been in Michigan my whole life, so churches are home, as is Michigan. So before we dive into the word, who am I? <laughs> what do I do? So I am wife to Kevin uh, for 20 years and mom to three daughters. I have twins that just started high school and my littlest just started middle school. So I know you're praying people, so remember me in your prayers. They're delightful ladies, but you know, we're not bored in our house, that is for sure. Uh, I work part-time at Western Michigan University with International Campus Ministry. I've been there for nine years and have the joy of loving on and with international students. So I could just tell you stories for the next half hour, which would be fun too. There'll be a few sprinkled in, I'm quite sure. But I also serve the Reformed Church in America at their denominational offices. I do interreligious and ecumenical work for them. So again, I'm not bored. And uh, Last week I was in Savannah, Georgia with Christian churches together. So I got to visit and have worship at Catholic Cathedral, Greek Orthodox Church, Historic Black Church, the First African Baptist there, and at an Episcopal Church. So I've been very churched up this week and I'm ready for more in it this next week at the National Council of Churches. So. You caught me in between trips, so I'm glad to be with you this morning. Whoa, with all that said, we're going to dive into Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11, and we're basically going to hang out in that text, a little bit of kind of Bible study style, if you will. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you all questions unless you want to get into it, and we can get into it, but uh, let's pray. Father God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Help us to remember that each and every day of our lives. Help us to see your truth this morning. Help us to take a look at our lives and our spaces. Help us to lean into you more and more each and every day. May this word be a gift back to you and to your people. In your son's name, amen. All right, so Colossians 3. So just a quick setup here. The Apostle Paul and his coworker Timothy wrote this letter to the Church of Colossae in a small city in Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. Paul had not visited there, but had received reports from Epaphras, the missionary who most likely founded the church. So the word of the Lord. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden in Christ our God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever brings to your earthly nature, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, excuse me, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self 
with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of creator God. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is God's very word. Thanks be to God. So Paul speaks positively at first, right, of the, Col- the Colossians' Christian faith, hope, and love, and acknowledges that the good news is bearing fruit and growing in them. Positive, positive, gold star, gold star, right? However, Epaphras has apparently brought Paul news of a serious problem there. Problems with false teaching that some scholars have labeled the Colossian heresy. Paul is writing this letter to help the Colossians to deal with those problems. While Paul will deal with their problems one by one, he first seeks to ground them in truth. Ground these Christians in solidarity on the basics of faith. So stripping back all of those pieces to get right back to the center of faith. We can do the same, of course, right? Individually, as a family unit, or even as a church. Now he spells out some of those implications for their lives. Since they have been raised with Christ, they need to seek the things that are above. They need to put to death their worldly behavior, such as sexual immorality and covetedness. They need to put things away, such as the anger, wrath, malice, slander, and shameful speaking. They need to speak truthfully to one another rather than with lies. And they need to remember that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bondservant, or free man. In a different translation. For Christ is all and is in all. So we'll take this piece by piece. So first verses one and two. If you then were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. I read that, the verse 2, to myself all the time. When my anxiety rises about what is happening in our world, even in our communities, I take a deep breath, and that scripture scrolls through my mind over and over, even more so as the days go on. So if you were raised together in Christ, Paul told these Colossian Christians that they have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised from the dead. That verse parallels with what Paul says in Romans 6, 3 through 5, where he portrayed baptism as a burial and resurrection with Christ. We hear that imagery often with baptism the burial of the old person before Christ and the resurrection with the Christ we know. He spells this out a little more in detail in Galatians where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer me that lives but Christ living in me. That life which now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we're back in the second half of that first verse. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When things are spiraling, 
when my anxiety rises, I know that God is in control. The word seek here is in that present tense, which in the Greek indicates continuing action, continuing to seek, continuing to seek. Not, okay, I read the Bible, I've done my Bible studies, I'm good. No, we gotta continue to seek, right? As a consequence of their new life in Christ, these Christians need to lift their eyes from the mud at their feet and up to the stars above. They need to leave behind their concern with the cosmos, worldly things, that they might focus on the things that are above. Christ reigns there, that's where our focus goes. Verse 2, set your minds on those things above, not those things here on earth. Yes, we need to go day to day by the things on earth, we need to do our, our work in our lives, but Christ is in that, in all of that. In, this letter to the, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul called them to take upon themselves the mind of Christ, we know this scripture well, who is with equal with God but, God, but didn't consider that equality something to be grasped. Instead, Christ emptied himself, came to earth in human form, and was obedient to death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him. In Romans 12, 2, we hear, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good, well-pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's one that we talk with our daughters about all the time. Set your mind on things above. Do not be conformed to this world. Many people think of heart religion or an emotionally based faith. We hear a lot these days, I'm spiritual, not religious. What does that look like? Many different, we could go on a whole nother sermon series on just that alone. We say that emotionally based faith is superior to head religion or faith with less emotional content. What is all that? While passionate faith can be a good thing, absolutely. The Bible speaks more frequently of what we call that head-heart religion connection. The people of biblical times thought of the heart as the center of the intellect and with rather than with their emotions. The Bible calls us over and over again to believe that head-heart-based um, spiritual life. We should not wonder why the Bible places such an emphasis on the mind, the intellect, our beliefs. People tend to act based on their beliefs, right? If they believe things that aren't true, they will act on those false beliefs and will suffer the consequences. If they have been taught well so that they believe what is true, they will benefit immeasurably by their teaching, by those true beliefs. In this verse, Paul contrasts the things that are above, the things that are on earth. While he doesn't define either of those, his comments in verses 5 through 9 give us a good deal of insight into what he would categorize those things to be. So, digging into verses three to four. You also will be revealed in glory, he says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So verse three, we see, for you died. Death is a pretty serious transition, right? It brings everything to an end. In this case, these Colossian Christians have died to their old order. 
their old selves no longer exist. But for them, death has not been the end. We know that death is not the final answer. They have been raised together with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. The second half of that verse. There is a good deal of hiddenness or mystery associated with God. After all, we hear in Isaiah 55 in the Old Testament, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and so my thoughts than your thoughts. So we've been required to dig deep in order to know God. But he's not hidden, right? We, we know that we don't have to... Um, seek in places that we don't uh, belong. God has revealed himself through the law and prophets, through his long story with history, through the, gov the covenant that weaves throughout scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that covenant that we have with the Lord. And we also see it through the work of the apostles. So nevertheless, the things of God remain unknown, except to those who have chosen to believe. To those without faith, the divine secrets are impenetrable as ever. It is that in the sense of these lives, these Colossian Christians are hidden with Christ and God. Having been born again through their baptism, their death and resurrection with Christ, and they've become different in ways that unbelievers cannot understand. Like those divine secrets, these Christians are hidden with Christ in God. Double hiddenness, if you will. <laughs> When Christ, our life is revealed. We're down to verse 4. The first thing to notice here is that Paul says that Christ is our life. It is his letter to the Philippian church. He said, for to me to live is Christ. To the letter to the Galatian church, he said, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ is living in me. That life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's consistent in his messaging, right? What are the practical implications for this life, for Christ being in our life? For one thing, Christ makes us privy to eternal life, which involves the life that we live here, as well as the life we live and we anticipate in the life hereafter. In his high priestly prayer, just prior to his death, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they should know the only true God to him who you sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life has as much to do with the quality of life as the quantity, right? Although both quality and quantity are involved, eternal life begins in the here and now. We are working towards that. It stretches beyond me, beyond you, beyond this beautiful church that you all have. What are the practical implications? We read that in the scripture. This means that the Christ-centered life takes on new character that is far more positive than the life we lived prior to knowing Christ. Like a navigator who possesses a compass that always points to true north, we have that compass. We might not be able to see what's around that next corner, we live with the promise that is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom we hear in Luke 12. Is revealed. 
in verse 4. He says, is revealed. This revelation will take place at Christ's second coming. Do we know that time? No. Do we want to know that time? Kind (laughs) of. I see some head shakes. No. There's some days I'm like, God, today, today would be great if you showed back up. I mean, in the flesh. (laughs) We know he's with us all the time. Continuing to verse 4, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. What a promise and a hope we have. When Christ is revealed in glory, he will share that day with his disciples, those who have believed in him, those of us who have followed his lead. We too will be revealed in glory, just as Christ was. So now we move into that section where he tells us all the things we need to put to death. So verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, your members which are not of this earth. The Greek word that is translated members means parts of the body. We know that, right? We are all members of Christ's church. Would it be possible to misinterpret this verse in the same way that some people have misinterpreted Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 29 through 30? Is this Paul? Is this what Paul or Jesus had in mind? course not. Paul goes to the trouble of giving us some specifics, (laughs) starting with the most overt sexual immorality and regressing back to the root problems that lead to sin. Depraved passion, evil desire, covetedness. This is not an exhaustive list, of course, but merely illustrative. Sexual immorality, Paul has used to refer to an insidious relationship with a man and his father's wife, specifically what that digs into. 1 Corinthians 5.1 tells us that. He counseled Christians not to have anything to do with people who claim to be Christians, but who practice this. He counseled them not to defile their bodies while engaging in prostitution. He counsels Christians not to talk about sexual immorality and warns that no sexual immoral person can inherit the kingdom. He really drills down into it. And then he goes into uncleanliness. The word uncleanliness talks about physical or moral. Paul uses it to refer to sexual impurity, but it can refer, uh, refer excuse me, to other forms of impurity as well. Then evil desire. The word in Greek doesn't necessarily indicate depraved passion, and there's no word in that Greek of the verse that could be equally translated. However, its linkage linkage with evil desire suggests that Paul means depraved passion here. Idolatry. Mm, That gets us sometimes, right? Paul equates covetedness with idolatry because covetedness involves loving something other than God with an insatiable love. Worshiping something other than God making something other than God a top priority. That gets tricky. How can we keep from coveting something? Do we have the kind of control over our feelings? Is Paul requiring the impossible of us? Of course not. There is no doubt that our feelings are important. However, it is not true that we are at the mercy of our feelings. Although, I'd argue my daughter's... um, would argue that one. <laughs> the mercy of, sometimes it's just takeover, right? <laughs> There's no doubt that they're important. 
However, it's not true that we are at the mercy of our feelings, that we cannot exercise control over them. The first is to use those traditional spiritual disciplines that many of us in our churches are being reminded of this fall. Of course, Bible reading, participating in worship, fasting, prayer, Christian fellowship. Have we fallen away from those pieces? The author author of Ephesians tells us to put on that whole armor of God. We know that scripture well too. That armor consists of the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, good news of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And can he, at the end of that section, we are reminded to pray at all times in the spirit. Am I praying at all times in the spirit? Question to ask myself daily. For which things sake the wrath of God comes to the children of disobedience? It's a, it's a harsh one too, but these are warnings to keep us in line with God. Paul warns the engagement in these vices will provoke the wrath of God on the children, but God is holy and cannot un- abide with unholiness. In some cases, the, these consequences have an almost automatic quality. People who become addicted to drugs or alcohol must suffer those consequences, right? To their physical, mental, financial, social, spiritual lives, it it can interweave in all of those spaces. People who have promiscuous lives, there's consequences there as well. In other cases, we might not see the consequences right at that moment, but they can trickle down. God is setting things right in us at all times. He's constantly working in us. He's constantly saying, stop this, or pay attention to this in your life. Because there are other people in your life that are leading you in the wrong direction. He's telling us to put to death those things, but also to put to death your anger and shameful speaking in verses seven and eight, as we make our way to the end of this passage. You also walked in those when you lived in them, but now you also put them all away. Put them all away. (laughs) Anger, wrath, malice, slander, shameful speaking. You also once walked in those when you lived in them. Paul reminds the Colossian Christians that they once were guilty of those sins. They know what kind of life was like, and they chose to put it behind them. One and done. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it takes that that long process to get there. In verse 8, we see, Now that you put away all these things, all this shameful speak out of your mouth, he asks to put away those sinful behaviors, anger and wrath. The kind of anger represented by the Greek here is the kind of smoldering anger that lies beneath the surface, just waiting for that excuse to explode. Today, a psychologist might call that hostility. The kind of anger represented by the word wrath in the Greek is that simmering, seething anger. Sorry, the wrath part is that explosive part, right? Basically, anger let out of its cage. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Don't seek revenge yourselves, beloved, but give place to God's wrath. 
for it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. In this letter to the Galatians, Paul includes hatred, strife, jealousy, and anger again. That was a a big one that kept coming up is anger. Rivalries, divisions, fractions among the works of the flesh. That last one hits deeply to me as the uh, denominations that I've loved for so long are dealing with divided fractions. It's hard. It's incredibly hard. But we know that God is bigger and in control. So let all bitterness, anger, wrath, outcry, slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ forgave you. Warning out of the coming judgment, the author of Hebrews reminds us of his of these words from Hebrew, vengeance belongs to me, belongs to God, not us. The value of Paul's counsel regarding anger is easy to see. Anger is deadly. We see it every day on the news. We see, I could tell you stories of stuff that my students have dealt with. Um, I've been honored to read some of their stories and how it is tearing countries apart. Um, It's tearing our country apart in many ways. So we need to be careful. We need to remember that God is in control. The value of Paul's counsel regarding anger is clearly written throughout this passage. Wishful Thinking, a book by Frederick Buechner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue in prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor those last toothsome morsels of pain you are given, to gossip about it together. In many ways, it's the feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. He's right. It can feel good sometimes to just get that out. But what are we risking in the midst of all that? A person's anger threatens the well-being of a family. Friends, co-workers, fellow church members, insert whatever in that space. And sometimes even physical violence. I cannot go into a women's bathroom anywhere in this country anymore without seeing a sign about domestic violence or trafficking. It is everywhere. Physical violence is throughout our society, unfortunately. While also anger might seem to get results in the short run, in the long run, it's usually counterproductive. A counselor friend once told me, anger hooks anger. In other words, people usually respond to an angry person by becoming angry themselves. And that dynamic is more likely to produce heat than light. How do we control it? How do we get rid of it? Of course, the first is to understand its corrosive nature. What is, what is behind all of that anger? I ask myself all the time, whether I'm anxious or angry or whatever, where is this coming from? I'm not necessarily angry at this person. There's something behind what's going on in my world. The second step is to remember 
that vengeance belongs to God, not us. Justice doesn't depend on our engaging in angry behavior. And of course, back to those spiritual disciplines we already mentioned, devotional time, prayer, fasting, these disciplines help us to recenter. Malice, slander, shameful speaking. We know these, we've seen them. Let's work towards removing them. Words, whether written or spoken, are powerful. Another conversation we have in our house all the time. My twin, I have twins that are 14. They like to tease each other a lot, which every sibling does. But some things they say to one another gets me in my mama's core. <laughs> and I say, if you're not going to, and they say it teasingly, I'm like, there's something behind that. Let's, let's work to back that up. James said that we are routinely tame animals, but nobody can tame the, tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. But if we bless our Father, our Father God, and with it curse men in the other side, what are we doing? What are we doing there? My brothers and sisters, he says, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send out from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree yield olives or vine figs? Can a spring have salt water and fresh water? James' point, of course, is that our speech grows out of what's in our hearts. If we have become a new person in Christ, our speech should reflect that we are a new person in Christ. Whether we accepted Christ a year ago or 40 years ago, we are new in Christ. And then finally, the last section, don't lie to one another. <laughs> Sound like your mom, don't lie to one another. Since you've taken off your old self and those practices, don't lie to one another. The Greek word means, that means to lie, to say that things aren't true, but it also can imply cheating or defrauding. Both Old and New Testament prophets um, foretold this, and they speak of honor and truth. The Ten Commandments talk about this. The person who deals falsely with their neighbor in a matter of deposit or bargain or fence, if that's the case, that's not in the scripture, that's a reality. Um, how are you dealing with it? God says to love our, love our neighbor as ourselves. I think sometimes we're too busy being angry at our neighbor to love them. I'm not necessarily bringing examples out of something that y'all told me, but just in general. <laughs> the New Testament has harsh words about false prophets. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Therefore, putting away all falsehood, speaking truth to our neighbors. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk with him, then let's do so. Let's do so. Paul calls the Colossian Christians to love one another and to put all those things away. Seeing that you have put off the old way, the old way of doing, put on that new clothing in Christ. And we are being renewed in that knowledge all the time. He reassured the Colossians that though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man or woman is renewed day by day. And we thank God for that. We have worked through this passage, good reminders of our day-to-day -day lives. So what does that look like? What are you facing this week? 
What challenges are ahead of you? I'm going to a, a larger church meeting this week where in the past there's been deep, deep divisions, but they're incredibly um, hard realities that God is bigger than. God is bigger than the issues that we seek every day. So look inward, love outward, raise God high and seek him in every step of your way. Will you pray with me? Father God, it can be hard these days with all we see and hear on the news of the troubles in our own backyards and across the world. I ask that you help us to put away all those negative words in our own minds and our anger that we feel and help us to love our neighbor right here in this community that can trickle out to the bigger communities, Lord. You've commanded us to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Help us to love our neighbors as well. Lord, be with Discovery Church. Be with their pastors and staff. Give them your hope and your vision and your future, Lord. Lift all this to you in your son's name. Amen.